trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stop that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Thanks for joining us. Today we have Sean Factor, founder of 180 Markets, who is an avid small cap trader. Sean, do you want to um, let us know what got you into markets and your background? Sure. Um, so, I guess I was about 19, 20 at uni. Um, as you may or may not know, I'm Jewish, so I had a bar mitzvah when I was 13, and I had about $8,000 saved up in which my dad, I mean, from bar mit, my bar mitzvah money, he put into some blue chips. I got an interest in the share market. I guess I was just a punter like a lot of 18, 19-year-olds are. I was going to the casino pretty often and um, I convinced my dad, I mean, so it was, I think, 99, the tech boom was, it was going, it was like just getting going and um, every tech stock was going nuts I convinced my dad to sell the blue chips and give me access to my money. I still don't know how I did that, but he he somehow gave in. And I remember my first share I bought was cable and wireless Optus, CWO. It was somehow involved in all the, the tech and it, it I think it doubled and I doubled my money and I thought, okay, this is great. I got very interested in the stock market just based on that and just started punting. Uh, so I met a broker and I used to deal through him. Um, I hadn't heard of Comsec or any of the online stuff. I used to finish uni a bit early and head down to the ASX building in Collins Street and it was better than a casino. You'd stand there, watch the numbers change, pretty much like what you see in the movies with open outcry. Um, so you see stocks move, you call up your broker, you place a trade and, um, at that time it would go up and, um, you thought that this was just too easy. So the, I remember when they introduced Boss Data, it was probably 98, 99, or, or when the ASX building got it, it was probably the best thing ever. You could see live market depth, um, prices changing buyers and sellers, it was any punter's dream. And um, that that's, I was, I got addicted to that as a lot of people would in the tech boom. And um, I discovered Comsec, I opened up an account and I, yeah, the tech boom, I think I remember having parties with my mates, not partying in a normal way, but watching the NASDAQ at night, watching, um, watching the 1.30 a.m. open and watching the NASDAQ go up um, every night. It was, and then knowing the next day you're going to make good money. It it was just too easy. 
Yeah, well, so it sounds like you started at quite a wild time in the markets then. Yeah, I guess I started at a at a good time where, like, if you imagine just um, the past three months where everything's going up, this that was like times 10. So there was opportunities everywhere in tech stocks and I just started hunting and it just seemed too easy. So anyway, that, that was... Um, short-lived and the market crashed and had a lot of um a lot of mistakes that i made and i think that's i I was able to learn from the mistakes and um keep keep going and um yeah one thing led to another and i was full-time trading sean you just mentioned you made a few mistakes you ran some dizzying highs do you have any specific stories or any particular wins that you were quite fond of Oh, look, it was a long time ago, but when there was Davnet and SecureNet and all those stocks that went up 20, 30 times in a ridiculously short time. And I guess I did do well on them, but then the mistakes that I did make was holding on to them. And you, one thing I've learned over the years is that every market like boom will, will bust. And you just can't get stuck holding on to dreams. And um, that's that's one thing I did learn. It, it, it's happened quite a few times after. We recently had, for example, cobalt boom and um, uranium boom and all those. And you can't get stuck holding on to the dreams of yesterday. You've got to move on to today's movers. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's pretty rare that you're going to get some sort of boom that just keeps going and, um, yeah people move from one sector to another. Just on the background there, Sean, you mentioned um, you were tra- trading whilst at uni. Were you studying sort of something finance related or was that just on the side? And Yeah, I was studying commerce economics. So it definitely was something we were learning at uni. So there was a lot of um, finance and stock market stuff, but it's, it, it did help me. Um, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a lot. There's there's stuff in there that's pretty important. Um, more the economics, I'd say, and um, yeah, that that holds you in good stead for the future. That's kind of how I started, and um, it kind of um, led from part time to full time. And um, I was applying for a grad job in uh, about two thousand and four after uni, and um, I didn't get one, and so I just kept trade in the market and um it it yeah turned into a full-time thing do you remember when you decided to sort of go full-time and maybe put other career ambitions aside whether your peers or colleagues or family sort of had any do they have any opinion or any oh yeah <laughs> what did they think and say to you when you made that decision well a lot of people thank their dads along their way for making them the person they are i'm thanking my dad for i mean i'm just glad i didn't listen to him because um, he was the whole way he was pretty much saying what I've been saying now is that the share market's dangerous. Don't stay in blue chips. Don't trade these speculative stocks. I mean, my dad's as conservative as they come. Um, so it, it still scares him. Um, although he's probably one of 180 market's biggest punters now. Um, he's become a stagger. So. He'll, he loves it now. He'll, he'll take placements, and, but he'll, he'll sell them straight away, which is obviously not great. It's not a great look for us when a 
factor goes and takes a stock and sells at day one. Um, but, you know, a lot of people warned me, this is not a good career option. Um, stay away. It's just, you're just lucky and um, you've made a bit of money, keep it and invest it. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, um, you've got to trust yourself sometimes. And um, I'm lucky I did, but I've heard a lot of stories going the other way. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it's not a job that's cut out for everybody. Um, just to cast your mind back again to the, the dot-com era, and I'm just wondering if there's anything that you observed or remember then that you're sort of seeing similarities in the market now. Yeah, yeah, there's always similarities. Um, I mean, I call our market just a gambling machine. Um, there are just so many punters. Um, I reckon Australians just love a punt. So seeing stocks move the way they did, in the dot-com boom, I, I mean, I don't know if we're seeing similar type moves, but the I think now the volumes may be a lot higher than what they were. Um, stocks used to move, I think, easier on less volume, but now they'll, they'll move, probably not as high in percentage, but um, with higher volumes. So in terms of trading, it's probably a lot easier now Obviously, the access to the internet now makes it easier than the dot-com boom. It was just starting. So, um, like, having all the different share market programs easily accessible just makes it so easy for the average punter to to have access. And I guess what we – the big difference now is what they call the Robin Hood traders, the guys that are putting in $100 and only paying $5 brokerage. Back in the dot-com boom, I think you're always paying a minimum fifty to hundred dollars, as most people are um, punting through a broker. So, I guess that the main difference, I mean, I see is just the infrastructure around for an ease of access now. What was it like when you were trading them? Was it were you running just a you know, retail brokerage account like now, or was it a different environment in terms of execution? No. So when I started, I remember having two or three brokers that I was using and then I discovered Comsec and I thought this is great. Um, and yeah, but I think I was trading the majority through a broker where I was going to the, um, to the um, ASX building and watching on their screens, the tickers and the, on boss data, you can get live, live feeds to, to ASX and that, that was bloody exciting at the time seeing it all move in front of my eyes and I remember just it feeling like what you see in the movies where you watch on the screen and you call a broker and place a trade. I don't think we were seeing market depth at the, at the time although it would have been around but um, yeah there was definitely less reliance on technology than, than now. Um, like if the internet went out then who cares? Whereas now it's the end of the world if the internet goes out. That's fantastic, Sean. I, I want to come back to being adaptable and how do you know? How do you know a boom's over? It's always easy in hindsight, but is there some really obvious telltale signs that we can sort of arm hunters with? No, nah, that's that's a hard part. You you don't know when it's over until until after. So I guess you if you taking it day by day and it's going 
it's going well, then you just got to keep going hard. But I guess you've got to be able to take the losses when it goes bad. And, um, and you only get to know after if it was the right thing, of course, but I guess being disciplined is all part of it. So if your portfolio starts turning south and you can't live in hope that it's always going to recover. So it's, it's look, it's always easier after the fact to, to say it's over or to say the new boom's begun. Um, so I just think it's all about being disciplined and you have to be prepared to take losses. Yeah, that's all part of it. So I guess, Sean, that's really um, interesting because you talked a couple of things about being disciplined and being able to accept losses. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting time when we come out of this because there's probably a lot of people that have entered the market and have done quite well recently. What did you do when the dot-com bubble rolled over? How, how did your approach and strategy change over time? Yeah, well, that was a long time ago. So I actually don't remember like individual stories, but that it was hard because I'd gone from being at uni with hardly any money to making quite a lot. I mean, a lot for me at the time and then losing say, 80% of that in a very short time. So obviously it was hard and you then got to re rechange your thinking. Um, so I guess after that, there was a resource boom that lasts for a long time and you just learn from, from what mistakes you made and try and use that to, to your best advantage over the next boom. So in the same way as now we had a market crash and then recovery, you just got to learn what went wrong and what went right and try and use that in the future. So, I mean, we, the same thing happened with the resource boom. We, that was in the, I think 2006, 2007 is when it really started and um, that lasted a lot longer than the tech boom. Um, and that's what, you know, I mean, a lot of people made lots of money in that, in that time. And it wasn't just one resource sector, there were, there were many. Well, and you mentioned, so you sort of said there, Sean, the, the adaptability and changing as the markets change. Can you give listeners a bit of an overview about what your approach is now? What the types of companies and the types of approaches you you personally or, you know, professionally trade and invest in now? Okay, so yeah, I'm looking at sectors that have got a lot of market interest. So when there's a boom in a certain sector, then I'll look at um, getting set in those companies and often I'll try and pick the next boom area, which, I mean, when you're talking about 10 baggers, which I know is a theme that you guys are looking at. That, that's what we're certainly looking for, yeah. That's, that's, that's how you can definitely make them, but it's a lot harder that way. So if you're going for a sector that's already moving, it's a lot easier, but you're, not gonna, you're gonna miss out on the first, the first movement. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm more, I'm more looking at the sectors that are moving, and um, I guess when it, the good thing about the Aussie market is there's a lot of different sectors, and obviously with resources, there's there's always one sector that that's hot, and we've gone from cobalt to uranium to now there's all the little gold stocks are going nuts as the gold stock, as the gold price goes up. So is it predominantly the smaller cap stocks that you're personally invested in? Or? Yeah, I'd say 99% of micro small caps. Um, 
yeah, I, I don't, I just find that's where the bigger returns are. Um, so, yeah, it's um, definitely at the moment it feels like gold's, gold's um, the sector that everyone's playing. Yeah, so in terms of picking those smaller ones, what are some of the things you look out for? Obviously, the themes is a big one, but even within a theme, there's often a number of different stocks or companies listed. What are the next sort of things you go through to filter out and, and pick your hopeful winners out of that bunch? So what's crucial for me is that there's positive... I'll say two things. One, that a company is going to be fully funded. So if I look to enter a stock, if I enter for replacement, I know it's going to be funded for however long. Or if I'm buying on market, it's got to be fully funded and I know, know that no capital raising is coming up. So that's the first thing I'm, I've got to make sure that it tick off the box. The second thing is that it's got upcoming news flow. So I'm not going to just buy a stock because its business is performing well and eventually over time it's going to do well. It's got to have news flow coming up and whether that's upcoming drilling or a biotech that's got a trial or something like that, but something that's going to get the market's attention. Um, and there's definitely a lot of stocks that that have that in small cap world. So, yeah, that's, um, for me, that's the number one thing. Um, yeah, there's, it's got to be able to really be able to get that excitement from traders. And I guess that's, you've got to try and pick a point that, you'll be happy to sell um, and that's when the market's going to get excited about that stock. Okay. And how is it you sort of go about that research? Is that just trawling through all the company announcements or sort of contacting the company and finding out what their priorities yeah, are? Com combination. So obviously I'll keep up to date with all announcements and um, read a bit of research reports, try and see what the market's waiting for in terms of the individual company. Um, just, yeah, I'll also speak to company directors and find out the timing of different things. And, um, yeah, it's, it, look, it's, I guess when you have something like COVID happen, it happens, it changes everything because all upcoming drilling is delayed and, and different trials for biotech stocks are changed and everything. I mean, but so, yeah, it's trying to, trying to get that feel for timing of different sort of um, market events and what's going to get the stock ticking over. Cool. And I suppose to the next stage then, once you've picked picked company and you're setting it, whether it's on market or via placement, so how do you know that your um, thesis is coming right? Is that waiting for that news to come or waiting for the price action? Or, yeah, what, what means everything's going well? Well, I guess you'll, as long as the company's following what they said they do and the drilling or whatever is going on time, um, then then I'm happy. And um, yeah, it's, I guess when, when you're catching directors lying and when things change pretty quickly and they're making excuses and it's time to cut your losses or just get out. So yeah, a lot of the time it's um, just making sure that companies stick to what they say they're going to do and um yet yeah, look in small cap world it's hard there's there's a lot of companies that don't stick to it and that'll change their minds pretty quickly and um 
can spend a lot a lot of money quicker than what they said they would. So yeah, it's it's when I enter stock for replacement, I've got to make sure that they gonna be fully funded for a certain amount of time and if things change pretty quickly then it's time to cut the loss and move on. On that, Sean, then, that's a really good one because we had a guest asking us recently. And Is that something that you put a manual stop in there or is it situational where you think, like you've just mentioned, that the circumstances have fundamentally changed and you just need to be quick and ruthless? Is- yeah, so I never use um, set stop losses. Um, maybe I should, but I've never, I've never been a fan of a calm down 15% I've got to sell because there could be many different reasons why the stock is down and um if i guess what i always ask myself when i'm holding a stock is would i be buying it now would i be still buying if i wasn't in it and i guess that can help you then decide when you're going to sell um because if the stock's fallen and it's cheap you may be buying but you've already got exposure so you wouldn't be buying but I often ask, ask myself, okay, so if, I, if I'm out there in the market and I don't have stock, would I be buying? So that's um, for me is a critical point of if I'd be holding or not. Um, so yeah, I just never like stop losses, and it's look, it's good for some people, and um, I may sometimes be happier. It might might sound weird, but I'd rather take a thirty percent loss than a fifteen percent loss if I'm if I feel right about it, because that if you take that 15% loss when a company's still doing what you said, but it's only down because the market's fallen, then it might not make sense. So, yeah, look, things change. Things change so quickly in this environment. You just got to be adaptable to the to what's happening out there. Thanks for that, Sean. You mentioned about being adaptable, um, but I wanted to ask you, is it actually situational or do you have a set limit or is it just as simple as saying, would I be buying the stock now? Yeah, exactly. Look, and and maybe sometimes some of my biggest losses have been because I haven't been disciplined and I keep buying because you, you believe things are so cheap, but yeah, often the market the market can be right and you can be wrong a lot of times. So every situation's different. And um, yeah, as long as you can learn, learn why you were right or why you were wrong and um, use that in the future, I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's a fundamental lesson from all the people we've been speaking to is this, if you're out there trying to make, uh, if you're out there trying to learn from your mistakes and, and, and coming up with plans and solutions, I think that's that's the mark of someone that's successful. I want to come back to that period where you said you took an 80% loss after those dizzying highs in a tech firm. I'm assuming that's an 80% loss of your total portfolio. That's not just getting blown up in a couple that's of stocks, That's right, yeah. Isn't it? Well, that's, it was a pretty common scenario after the tech boom that... Um, Look, and that that was, I mean, most of that was profits anyway. So it was like a very quick up and a quick down. Um, so, yeah, as I said before, it was going from being a normal uni kid to making quite a bit of money and then losing 80% of that. But I still felt I had what it took to, to make it in trading. Um, and a lot of people may have just quit then. But, yeah, I just... I just stuck to it and um, 
yeah, it's been looked at the time. It was it was very hard, and um, yeah, it's kind of a lot of people would have had similar sort of losses recently when COVID when COVID struck, and a lot of small small cap stocks fell by. It may be not eighty percent, but there were some big falls out there. So I guess on the flip side of that, Sean, I'm talking about you know making a lot of money and then losing a lot of money, and we talked about losses and cutting out of things when the story is no longer sticking to plan. How do you know to hang on to a stock or, and on the same token, I suppose, start to sell potentially for a profit or make you know combining those two things, I suppose, to hold on whilst things are going up nicely, but also locking your profits before the reversal. Yes, yeah, so I guess one thing that I've done and. I guess it, what, my trading philosophy has always been to take profits. So I know you guys like talking about 10 baggers and that. I don't think I've had many 10 baggers just because I'd rather recycle the cash. So I've often said I'd rather make 30% three times and make 100% one time. I just feel safer to keep recycling things and rather than be greedy. Um, it's not to say that, yeah, it's not to say that that strategy works, but for me, that's what I've always preferred. Um, yeah, I'd rather, or even double my money a few times rather than try and go sixfold in a share because, look, there are quite a few out, stocks out there that I can go through that I have seen go up many times. Um, but for me, I'd rather trade them than try and hold on for the, ultimate 10 20 30 bagger um and one thing yeah one thing that you need to kind of be prepared for is mentally that if you do take that approach you've got to mentally say to yourself okay i've made a profit i know i could have made more but i've got to move on and that's really hard it's the same same sort of mentality as taking a loss and saying okay, I've taken the loss, I'm disciplined, um, I, I need to move on. Um, so, yeah, it's all part of a discipline sort of trading plan that I've always stuck to. That's a really good answer, Sean, that I think is going to resonate with a lot of listeners. I guess I've got a couple of points. The first is just to clarify. Uh, six months ago when COVID hit, I think anybody that was taking bags would have been happy to take it. Uh, so certainly not suggesting that we're always hanging around there for 10 bags. And the second point, I think you just touched on something really, really intriguing, which is uh, one of our previous listeners talked about the idea of selling something and then buying it back and then admitting you got it wrong. So I, I, I guess it comes down to your own trading plan, but just interested to hear your thoughts on that because I think there's nothing wrong with taking profits and you will usually find another runner, but there will be that one that seems to keep going and it always haunts us more than I suppose a lot of haunts us, at least I find personally. Oh, look, there's heaps of times that I've sold the stock and bought it back higher and probably done it multiple times on the way up. And that's, you just have to be prepared for that. A lot of people don't like doing that and it's kind of like selling, selling, it's kind of like short selling but going in after. And, it, everyone's different. Everyone's strategy is different. There's long-term traders, short-term traders. If if you're going for those big 10, 20 baggers, then you may want to put less amount in and just be prepared to hold. Whereas with me, I prefer to put more into something and try and make a smaller percentage more times than um, 
going for that big one. Speaking of higher risk positions there, Sean, some people will probably know you or recognise your name from involvement in some listed shells. That's a company without a primary project. Can you talk us through what that trading approach is and strategy and some of the sort of pros and cons of it? Yeah, look, I think um, if you're looking for 10 baggers, then shells are probably a good strategy, um, but you've got to be prepared to hold and you've got to be prepared to back the team. Um, during the last, co- I mean, in that patch I was talking about, the cobalt boom is when I was in a lot of shells and I did do well in quite a few of them, but the problem is you believe in the new story and you're stuck holding them and it becomes a shell again. So that that's a, that's that's a hard part about it is that um, shells are good stories. They, they create good avenues for entry into the share market, but um, you need to be following the right sort of people who are in control of the shells. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty... If you can find the right shell, I sometimes believe it's a good low-risk sort of strategy to a 10-bagger. But you've got to be prepared to be patient and you've got to hope that the asset they put in is not going to go out of fashion as soon as it goes into the shell, which often happens and has happened to me quite a few times. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's easy to own 5% of a shell because a lot of shells, you don't, I mean, got very low market valuation. So that's where you've probably seen me in a registry in the past few years, not as much at the moment. Um, I think at the moment, because the market's been so good, there aren't a lot of clean shells around because they don't really stay at shell valuation for a long time. Um, we've, I mean, probably three or four months ago, any stock that was a shell doubled or tripled, except for the ones I was holding. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, I was in, I mean, I don't want to mention the name because I'm very critical of what happened there, but I was in one little gold stock that hadn't moved for ages and um, every other gold stock doubled or tripled. And I'm sure a lot of people are in similar positions where it feels like everything else is going up except for the one you believe in um, and yeah we've had a very good market for micro caps and shells and um, yeah it's uh, I mean I still like that strategy you just got to know what you're doing don't, don't just buy a, com- a, a share because it has a one million dollar micro cap though that's um, definitely do not be doing that make sure you do your research if you do want to go in shells because a lot of them have got debt, so that takes away the shell, the shell value. That's a really good segue, Sean, as to maybe what you're doing now with 180 Markets and how those experiences led you down that path. Yeah, sure. So 180 Markets is an online platform that um, we've set ourselves a goal to get access to every capital raise. Um, and I guess the majority at the moment are placements, um, but... Given how strong the market is, we've seen a big upturn in um, recent IPOs being announced and RTOs as well. So while we are doing a lot of placements, we are starting to get a lot of IPOs on there. Um, And typically we're finding it's a different sort of investor that 
likes an IPO compared to a placement. Um, but yeah, we we are a deal sharing platform and that's where a lot of my energy is. Um, just trying to grow that and um, trying to join it in with my trading. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's good that I can run a business that's um, so close to what I've done for years. And um, yeah, I guess it, it's just set the passion alive again. Um, a bit of passion that I was probably lacking the, the past few years, because as, I, as I've mentioned, trading is very repetitive. Um, some people love it and um, some people view it as being very, um, very um, like chilled and very like an easy job, but it, it's not, it's very repetitive. So now 180 markets is nice and exciting and um, yeah, something different. Oh, it sounds like you're really lucky to be able to turn all your um, you know, skills and experiences into something that you can do certainly day in, day out, regardless of the market. Just to cast your mind back again, I'm wondering if you can remember think when things weren't as easy, how you sort of managed to recover and sort of stick it through when the times were really tough, whether that's in the dot-com boom or other sort of downturns in the market. I think with the dot-com boom, I was lucky enough to have made enough to, to be able to sit back, treat it as a hobby again and not rely on it as income. Um, had I had a family, I mean, after the dot-com boom, I was probably still in my early 20s. So I didn't have a family to, to afford. I didn't have a wife that has bloody expensive tastes and wants to buy jewellery the whole time and um, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's not having the a, a family rely on you is very different to being in your early 20s and um, being able to to lose a bit of money and treat it as a hobby. And, um, yeah, if I was just – I wouldn't be able to start trading now and um, and have a – and have, have I think, have the balls to do it because you, it's just – it's so up and down. Yeah, it sounds um, like a bit of a combination of a bit of good luck, some – some skill with it as well and the, that um, competitiveness that you describe but also just the situation that you're in to be able to carry on yeah it's um look they say one percent of traders make it over the long term um i've been lucky enough that i've been able to make it work but people that ask me should they start trading i'll tell most of them if not all nah don't do it don't no matter how good the market is like I mean, what we've had in the last six months is probably not going to happen again for a while. Um, and, and like now there's just so many punters. Um, I've only recently started going on Twitter and I hate what I see. I hate all these new guys joining in and thinking that this is normality for the markets. Um seeing every IPO double on day one, seeing stocks double, triple in a day based on some irrelevant news. Um, and these guys are just punting. So there's going to be consequences of the fun we've had. Um, and, yeah, I fear for the people that get caught. Um, yeah. As, as, well, as a lot of people got caught in the dot-com boom, I mean, people lost a lot of money in, in the dot-com boom, um, especially people that started late, people were wiped out. So, I mean, the share market's always fun when it's going up, but when it's going down, it's, um, 
just be careful. There's, I mean, even my wife quite a few times has said, maybe it's enough. Um, all the stress it gives you, is it worth it? And I mean, there's a lot of stress involved with this. Um, there's, yeah, it's, um, it's not, it's not, as I said earlier, it's not, it's not all the joys. It's, um, yeah, there's a lot of frustrations and, and stress. Fantastic, Sean. I think I've got a couple of things, I guess, just to cover off what you've just said. Um, those sort of comments are probably in a nutshell why we've probably not been putting a heap of content out in, in the last sort of six months, notwithstanding scheduling or, or, or other issues, but we've just been as a group, not wanting to, to encourage or, you know, incentivize people to punt because we are all acutely aware that the music will stop and it's going to be hard. I remember what it was like after 2017 with the Pilbara gold fever and, you know, it was like you just mentioned, Cobalt was quite hot around then too. And I think everyone in 2018 struggled after those big falls and, and thought that the normality was going to come back, but it, it takes a while. And I think it's very easy to recognize these in hindsight, but hard at the time. So, um, but yeah, very, very useful. Um, no, I was just going to say, as you said, there's, there's a massive difference between a good market and a bad market. There's um, it's not just the market going up and down, but there's there's no volume in bad markets. There's there's just not a lot happening. It's extremely boring and frustrating. And um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want anyone to try and make a career of this in a bad market. Um, look, if we can all make hey while well, the sun shines and then stop when the market turns bad, then that's great. But you've got to be prepared for that. Okay, thanks, Sean. I know we keep drawing parallels to the dot-com boom, but it just seems so relevant right now if the market were to roll over. Can you talk about how you rode the portfolio all the way down, maybe some of the emotions that you were feeling, and I guess any lessons or techniques that you can use? You've you mentioned, it's, is, it, is it the competitiveness that, that makes you want to do better? And, and... Oh, look, it's, um, yeah, I am extremely competitive, and I'm not sure if that's played into me hanging around in a share market like there there were so many lessons to be learned when the market corrected and um as i said earlier having the ability to hang around was the difference so um really changing the way i traded um changing my average ticket size um being able to cut the losses use the cash to to grow in in other in in other stocks and I guess um the the hardest part is joining the dots between sector um so what I'm trying to say as we said before a lot of sectors go in phases but let I mean I remember I was heavily exposed to the cobalt boom so this is probably five, six years ago. I was up a lot of money on a few cobalt stocks. Um, and having the cobalt boom end so quick and then convincing yourself that it's over and being able to move on to the next sector feels really important. Um, like if we go from a biotech boom to a gold boom, it's you can't be stuck holding all these biotech stocks you believe in because maybe in three years' time they can recover. 
Um, but if you're talking about short-term trading, I mean, cobalt stocks still haven't recovered close. Um, I mean, we, I was holding quite a few of these. I'm still holding one or two of them, but not out of choice, but because they delisted. Um, a cobalt stock couldn't raise money a year ago. You just, you get stuck. Um, and it, it's very hard as a punter to accept that loss. Okay, thanks, Sean. With that being said in the context of this market, do you have a nominated 10-bagger? I was hoping not to. I was, um, that's my worst thing is giving any sort of advice. So, Not advice, just a stock to go and look at. All right, so how about I give you two so it spreads my risk? How does, how does that sound? So, I mean, both of them, I mean, they're high risk, so here's a disclaimer. Whatever I say is not advice, and it's... Um, my thoughts only and blah, blah, whatever disclaimers you need. But we've, and look, I'm not trying to promote 180 markets, but I'll, I will use it as a bit of a plug. We recently did capital raises for two companies and I, any capital raise where 180 markets is a lead manager, we cornerstone. So we've normally got a reason for raising their money and that's because we want to invest ourselves and then, as I said, investors can follow us into raises. So we recently did two, and I believe that both of them have the potential to be 10-baggers. Um, the one is New Peak Metals, that codes NPM. They're trading at 0.3. They were um, dark horse resources for those of you that like a little punt in Argentina. Um they are going to be doing quite a bit of drilling. Um, we recently raised them, I think about 1.3 million at 0.3. Um, and we just feel in this environment, it's just sitting tight and it, it could just for some news really explode. I'm not saying it'll be a 10 bagger. If it doubles from here, I'll probably be selling. So don't go and buy it if it, trades at 0.5 or 0.6 because you'll probably be buying my stock but a lot of the shares that I buy I'm not looking for 10 baggers but this one does have the potential um it's we really like the team it's um it's got it, it's got it's it's got the boxes ticked in our eyes um the next one is less risky but it it's we, we 180 markets did a capital raise for them as well, where we cornerstoned Australian vanadium. Um, it's probably been our worst performer in terms of lead manager roles. Um, unfortunately, the book we did was not tight, and we've definitely learned from that. We gave a million bucks to someone that flogged our market day one. Um, needless to say, that's created a great buying opportunity and that's why we, we've added to our positions down here um, at 1.1. As its name says, Australian Vanadium, it's a Vanadium company. Vanadium's unloved at the moment, but all you need is Vanadium to become a popular sort of metal again. And as we've seen with rare earth and gold, any, any commodity that's unloved, as soon as it gets a market attention, traders go and flock and um, uh, 
this one's just so liquid that we could easily see this one. I don't know about a 10 bagger. Look, a 10 bagger would be nice because um, I got a shitload in there. Sorry, excuse the language, but it's my biggest position by far. But look, if it doubles, it'll be great. Um, as well as Vanadium, it's got a project called the Coates Project, which is right near to Chalice, CHN. Um, the market's not overly aware of this. I mean, it, those who do their research will know, but the company hasn't promoted this. So we think once they start drilling there, they get hopefully some hits. It could shoot up. But, yeah, as I say before, these are, these are just stocks that I like. Um, and, yeah, high risk, hopefully high return. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks for that, Sean. Um, I think you've been very honest and forthright with uh, listeners and uh, investors about the, the conditions and catalysts there and certainly uh, your honesty as well, um, you know, in the book process. Do your own research. Do your own research. Risk. That's right. And um, like any small cap, they listed for one reason and that's access to capital. Um, if we can make money out of it, that's great. Um, but these companies keep raising money and they both of them are well funded for now, but like any small cap, they listed for access to capital and you've got to keep that in mind always. Fantastic. All right, John, well, thank you very much for that and the tip itself. And just lastly, if people do want to get in touch with you or 180 Markets, what's the best way to, for them to do that? Sign up at www.180markets.com.au. They can contact me through the website. So... I'd be more than happy to speak to anyone. And um, yeah, look, we, we're all about 180 markets is about giving the ordinary bloke in the street, obviously a sophisticated investor, access to as many placements as possible. Fantastic. Well, some really good tips and insights there, Sean. And we appreciate hearing your stories and the experiences you've been through. Thank you very much for your time and coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.